Testing, testing, one, two. Oh, that's a lot better. Okay. Whew. So, uh, uh, for him, for the, for the uh, cancer surgeon to even leave just a little bit, it's the difference between life and death, isn't it? You know, a few years ago, I was redoing uh, a bathroom in my house, and I was cutting out the walls, and I was actually told I was being too precise, and I needed to uh, take out the bathroom, uh, just take it out with my sledgehammer, okay? Uh, I was being too precise. I need to just take it all out. Uh, you know, people say that theology, or the study and knowledge of God, is more like a surgeon's knife than it is a construction sledgehammer. As we think about what God requires of us, and as we want to know God rightfully, we have to make careful distinctions between what is true and false, not with a sledgehammer, but with a surgeon's scalpel. Because the results of what we think about God is the difference between life and and death. See, actually, our passage this morning is one where, admittedly, throughout history, there are people who have cut wrongly, and it has been disastrous. And so, for our purposes this morning, as we look at God's Word, we want to be clear, we want to make clear and knowledgeable in the passage so that we too would know God rightly, so that we would follow him confidently, and so we can find rest in him in every time of trial. The question this morning is, are you cutting the passage wrongly? Let's find out together. So we are in a new series this morning. We are starting the Gospel of John, and, and the Gospel of John points to Jesus' identity as the Messiah, and he calls us to believe in him, to find life in his name. That's actually the series name is Life in His Name, and we are called to believe, trust, and follow King Jesus and as is our custom, we have a verse of the series that we are working on because we think that just hearing God's word is not enough, but we want to have it on our lips. We want to have it sealed on our minds. And so we are memorizing part of the Gospel of John that is going to help us as we study it together. And so that's going to be John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. That's on the screen. Uh, let's, let's say that together. Let's all say John 3, 14 and 15 together. Here's what it says. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, it is not by human exertion or human will or effort that anything lasting here happens. Anything that is eternal that happens here, Lord, this morning is by your Spirit at work. And so we pray that your spirit would be at work in us through your word, that we might understand it and know it and be changed by it. Lord, we pray that you would do that good work as we study John chapter 1 this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
If you do have a Bible, I encourage you to open it to the beginning of John's Gospel. Uh, We're going to only look at the first five verses this morning. But here's the big idea I want you to take away with, that if you get called out in an emergency, if I am so boring that you fall asleep, or if I speak so complexly that it's hard to follow, whatever those variables are, here's what we want you to walk away with this morning. If we aren't careful, we will mistake Jesus for someone less than eternal divine, or the agent of creation. And therefore, we need to embrace the biblical Jesus. If we aren't careful, we will mistake Jesus for someone less than eternal or divine or the agent of creation. And so what we need to do is we need to embrace the biblical Jesus. So let me give us a, an overview of what John's Gospel is about, and then we're going to look at the five uh, verses together. Uh, You know, often when we read the Bible, we like to jump ahead first. We like to look at so many details that we end up missing the forest for the trees. Uh, And our study of John's Gospel will actually bring greater understanding of God as we think about the big picture, as we think about the purpose and the structure of the book. It actually prevents us from mistaking the Bible to being all about us when it is actually all about God. Have you ever wondered why uh, the different gospel writers wrote their gospels? Right? Like sometimes, you're like, well, why do we need four? One's enough. Well, what's going on here? In fact, why are they even writing them? It's not even random. It's specific. And John gives his reason for why he wrote his gospel at the end of his letter in John chapter 20. Here's what he says. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So what we see is that the Gospel of John is actually selective about what he wrote about, and it focuses on Jesus' signs. And so in the the Gospel of John, John chose seven signs to focus on, and actually only one of them is found in all of the other three Gospels. John calls them signs, not miracles, to show us, to point us in the direction of who Jesus is. And so he chose these seven signs in order to bring faith, uh, bring people to faith. And so the Gospel of John is kind of like one giant gospel tract, just a really big one. Um, And so the goal is that those who read and hear the Gospel of John will be saved. That's why if you're going through, uh, going to study a book of the Bible with a friend or a neighbor or, or someone interested in Christianity, the Gospel of John is a great place to start to read together for that very reason. And so our goal, as we study what John's gospel, as we look at what's written, we begin to ask why these signs specifically are important, and how they help shape our understanding of who Jesus is as the Christ, the Son of God, so that we would find life in him. And so our goal would be rightly understanding Jesus, and knowing what it means to follow him and cherish him. Now maybe you're here this morning, and you're not a Christian. 
uh, the cat's kind of out of the bag here, isn't it? Uh, y- you should know that we're not just doing a history lesson to get better at Bible trivia night, but we are looking at God's word in order that our faith would grow, that we would rightly understand Jesus, and that the result would be that we have life in him. Doesn't that sound good? Life? Maybe you've been tired of life, maybe tired of its difficulties and stresses, and you wonder if there's just something better. Well, there is. And that life is found in Jesus. If life in Jesus is something that you're curious about, at the end of the service, we're going to have a couple elders that are just standing up here wanting to pray with you and talk with you. Would you come find us? We'd love to talk to you more about what it means to know life in Jesus. Maybe you're a Christian here today. Maybe that means that, that as we open up the Gospel of John, that we need to keep believing. John's Gospel isn't just for everyone else who doesn't yet know Jesus. It isn't even for that one-time belief, but it says that by believing, you may have life in his name. Well, friends, we are not called to believe in theory. We're not to have a one-time belief. We are called to continue to believe and put our trust in Jesus. And so the Gospel of John is not simply for evangelism or only sharing the hope of Jesus to non-Christians. Brothers and sisters, this book is so that we would continue to believe and grow deeper in our discipleship with Jesus because John's gospel is for us. We need it. And so to give us some handlebars of where we're going, uh, the author is John the Apostle, not John the Baptist. I know there's several Johns. It it can be confusing. John, who wrote this letter, was part of the inner three disciples, Peter, James, and John, out of the twelve. He wrote three other letters, and even the final book of the New Testament, the book of Revelation, it's the same John who wrote all of those. And the most common view that, that is accepted today is that the, the Gospel of John is written 10 to 20 years after the uh, destruction of the temple in 70 AD. So sometime between 80 and, and 90 AD is when they think that it's written. Uh, uh, possibly originated and directed to, to Jews that are living in the diaspora in, in, in uh, a mixed Jewish and Gentile outside of the Promised Land uh, community, kind of like Ephesus. And the outline of the book is really simple, actually. There's the introduction or the prologue, if you ever read a commentary. There's, there's the conclusion at the end. And then there's just two parts in the middle. There's part one, that's the seven signs that are pointing. The, each sign is, is, is a larger sign getting to the identity of Jesus. And that takes us to the first half of the book. And then part two of the Gospel of John is really just the last week of Jesus' life. So so it's pretty easy to to structure to see what's going on here. But if we aren't careful, we will mistake Jesus for someone less than eternal, less than divine, less than the agent of creation. And so it is important for us, if we want to say that we have hope in him, we need to know why we can trust in Jesus, who he is that makes him trustworthy. Let's look at Uh, now the first five verses of John's gospel. Here's what John writes. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, 
And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let's look at this first part here. Uh, Jesus was in the beginning. I know it's a new month. It's September, and I know what you're thinking. Let's bust out the Christmas music, right? Anyone with me? I know, I know that you cannot help but think about Christmas music when we read our passage. So, so, so think back with me back all the way to uh, 325 A.D., Okay, uh, and, and there was this council of, of bishops and people who gathered together, 300 bishops, 1,500 people in total, at the Council of Nicaea, and their goal in meeting is to rightly understand the relationship between the Son and the Father. And there were about 30 guys who were led by this guy named Arius who argued that Jesus was not of the same substance as God the Father, only a similar substance. And Arius was teaching that Jesus the Son was not equal to God the Father. That's an important question, right? Was Jesus truly God in the flesh or a created being? Was Jesus God or not? Arius denied the deity of the Son of God, saying that Jesus was created by God as the first act of creation, and that the nature of Christ was unlike that of God the Father. Well, as Arius is speaking, okay, uh, St. Nicholas, you know, the St. Nicholas, who's at the Council of Nicaea, is getting more and more agitated. And so he could no longer, at the point where he could listen to the truth of Jesus being attacked, St. Nicholas is so outraged, he gets up, he goes across the room, and he punches Arius in the face. Okay, that's a Santa I can believe in. Okay? (laughs) Arius was on his naughty list. You see, the Council of Nicaea in May of 325 uh, declared Arius a heretic after he refused to sign a document stating that Christ was of the same divine nature as God the Father. I mean, it almost sounds correct, doesn't it? He's like the Father, but just not the same. But if we hit with a sledgehammer, yeah, everything looks like a nail. But if we're using a surgeon's scalpel, we recognize that that is actually the difference between life and death. What we cut out and what we keep is the difference between life and death. Because what is actually correct, as our passage is going to show, is that the Word, who is Jesus, is not just like the Father. He's not just in similar substance of God. In fact, he was with God, and he was God. And so there are some today, even, right down the road, on our way to Cambridge, who are going to say that John is not referring to God as a specific being, but to general qualities like God. The Word, they say, 
was not God, but had some divine qualities. Friends, John 1 describes Jesus not as someone who is created, but being in the beginning with God the Father. That's actually the very reason why we sing God the uncreated one. That first phrase of John's gospel, in the beginning. We see in John's gospel, it, it takes us back to the sounds of the beginning of the Bible, doesn't it? All the way back to Genesis. And the parallel between the work of God in the old creation and his work in the new creation is, is on display in these first verses. In both the creation in Genesis and in new creation, it's done through the agent, the word of God. In fact, verse 2 of our passage says that the word was in the beginning with God. Now, John is not describing an idea or philosophy when he uses the word word. He's describing a person. Now, the background for John's use of the word isn't so much in Greek philosophy, but actually in Hebrew revelation. See, the word of God in the Old Testament means that God is in action. He especially in creation and in revelation and in deliverance. So in creation, in the creation account in Genesis, we, re we read repeatedly, God said, and it was so. God said, let there be light. One of the most common things we read in the Old Testament about God is that he spoke to his prophets it wasn't Isaiah who said, thus says Isaiah, but instead it was Isaiah saying, thus said the Lord. Or, or even Isaiah 7.3, and the Lord said to Isaiah. Or we read in Isaiah 38, the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. We see that God not only uses his word as the agent in creation, but also in direction and in deliverance of his people. Now God has spoken to us now by his Son. Think of what the New Testament book of Hebrews, how it starts off. It says, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So soon we'll see uh, next week as we continue in, in John chapter 1 all the way to verse 14 where we see that the word has become flesh and dwelt among us. That the word is the person of Jesus Christ. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. And we think of what John writes in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 19, as he describes this rider on the horse, who he describes as Jesus who's returning. He says, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. 
So the Word isn't just with God at the beginning, but He is co-eternal with God. Think of what Paul writes in Colossians 2. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So what does it mean that the Word of God was with God and is God? Well, the Word shared the nature and being of God. That's what it means. What God was, the Word was. What John is intending to say and is saying is that the deeds and the words of Jesus are really also the deeds and the words of God. So when heaven and earth were created, there was the Word of God already existing in the closest association with God and partaking in the same essence of God. So no matter how far back we try to push our imagination, we can never reach a point where we could say that there was a time when the Word of God didn't exist. He has, in fact, forever eternally existed. The deeds and the words of Jesus are to be understood as the deeds and words of God. Friends, if we want to know God and trust Him and be forgiven and transformed, we need to recognize that Jesus is eternally existing. Not just in the future, but all the way from the beginning. See, when we consider what is being said about Jesus, when we look at the picture that that John is painting, it's stunning, isn't it? Uh, Jesus is not simply a good guy. He's not a moral teacher. He's not some religious guru. Jesus has been around further than our minds can comprehend. Uh, The same Jesus who willingly died on the cross, though he did nothing wrong, The same Jesus is the word that's being described here. And when we look at what is being said about Jesus, we should be overwhelmed in a fresh way of his greatness and glory that he would leave the realms of glory to come down to earth in order to rescue us. One author said it this way, you cannot understand anything else in the gospel if you do not understand that Jesus is God incarnate. So for us to trust and follow Jesus, we need to understand which Jesus we're talking about. We're not talking about a Jesus who was the first created thing. We're not talking about Jesus who is not God. No, John is describing Jesus who has eternally existed with God the Father who was in the beginning with God. And so if we're not careful, we will mistake Jesus for someone less than eternal, less than divine, less than the agent of creation. And so friends, we need to embrace the biblical Jesus. Let's look at this next part, uh, verses uh, 3 through 5 here. Uh, When we think back to creation, Think back with me as Jesus as the agent of creation. In Genesis chapter 1, God said, Let there be light, and there was light. In Genesis chapter 1 verse 6, And God said, 
Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And then again in verse 9, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. See, time after time, God is creating by his spoken word. And verse 3 kind of feels a little bit clunky. Uh, It seems excessively literal, but it's meant to be exceedingly clear. God is the the creator, and his word is the agent of creation. And so what what John is doing, he's describing the pre-incarnate work of Christ. What did Christ do before he came to earth? He didn't begin his existence when he was born of Mary. He actually was at work as part of the Trinity prior to him taking on human flesh. And his work was the work of creation. The Word who was already in the beginning is God's agent of creation, or what we might call the originator of all things. The pre-existing Christ created everything is actually a pretty common theme in the New Testament. Paul writes about that in Colossians 1. He says this, speaking of Jesus, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. Friends, that's, that's our Savior. That is Jesus whom we serve. That is Jesus who has redeemed us. Jesus, our creator, is also Jesus, our redeemer. And so we should be awestruck that that the God who created the universe and everything in it, whether visible or invisible, everything in heaven and on earth, thrones and dominions and rulers or authorities, God, who all these things are created for him, is one who came down to take on lowly human flesh. Jesus, the Son of God, who did not count equality with God, something to be grasped, made himself in the form of a servant by taking on human flesh so that he could humble himself to the point of death on the cross. For us. For us. We should be awestruck with the level of love that Jesus has for us. If it weren't enough for Jesus to be the agent of creation, if it weren't enough for Jesus to be eternally with the Father, Jesus is the source of life. In Jesus is Life In him was life, verse 4 says. Not simply someone with good morals, not someone who just tells you to save yourself or to try harder, but in Jesus is life. The life that John has in view here is new life, spiritual life, a saving life, the gift of eternal life. In him was life. And so the implication is this. If you have him, then you have life. 
That, that's the implication here. If you have Jesus, you have eternal life. If you reject him, you are rejecting life. That's what John writes later on, as we're going to get to in his gospel. In John 5, he says, uh, speaking of, as Jesus is speaking, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Or then Jesus says in John chapter 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Or what he says later on in John 10, he says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Friends, that's what it means. In him was life. And so if we have Jesus, we have eternal life. And so in our passage of verse 4, in him was life, means this spiritual, eternal life that saves us from spiritual death. And so if you have the Son, if you have Jesus, if he is in you and you are in him, then you have life forever. Friends, I don't think there is a better reason for worship. I don't know of a better reason for devotion to Jesus than this. The one who calls us by name, this Jesus, the word who is since the beginning, who has created all things, who went to the cross for us, it is he who calls us to lay down our burdens to him, to cast all of our anxieties upon him, because he cares for us. This is the same God who has eternally existed. It sounds great, doesn't it? But we see part of the problem in verse 5. The light has come into the darkness. Jesus has come into the world, and coming into this world means coming into darkness. Well, the reality is that the darkness doesn't just describe the world's fallen stance. It describes us, too. Not just our neighbor that plays music till 10 o'clock at night. Not just the neighbor that doesn't mow their lawn. No, the darkness is a description of us. It, does, it, it describes the description of every person outside of the uh, transformative work of Christ. Jesus, who is the light of the world, came into the darkness because we live in a fallen world. But the hope here is this, that Jesus is not overtaken by darkness. Jesus shines in the darkness. You know, it's the smallest of candles that can dispel a room of darkness. And that darkness, no matter how dark it is, does not dim out that light when you are next to it. See, Jesus isn't overcome by the darkness. The darkness can't stop Jesus. In fact, I think it's right for us to say that Jesus is the light bearer and the darkness breaker. Same Jesus we've been talking about. The one who is the agent of creation, the one who has eternally existed with the Father, is the one who holds life, eternal life, and he is the light that has come into the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. 
man. Guys, this is the Jesus that we serve. This is whom we are singing praises to and the one that we are a disciple of and the, the one we are following even if the rest of the world doesn't. But if we aren't careful, we will mistake Jesus for someone less than the eternal, divine agent of creation. Friends, we must embrace the biblical Jesus. Jesus, the eternal, divine agent of creation, is our Redeemer. He is our Savior. He is our hope. And so in all circumstances where we fail, where we need a Savior, the question is, can Jesus save? And the answer is yes, because he's not like you or me. He is not someone who is limited by our, our sinful flesh. He is not someone who has ever succumbed to temptation. He is not just another creation from God. But as the eternally existent, agent of creation, breaker of darkness, we can run to him and find hope in him. We do not worship him simply, uh, we don't worship simply another person, not just another human who has just achieved a higher level of humanity than us. No, we worship as that creed that was made in, in 325 from that council says, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him, all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified under, for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And that, my friends, is who we serve. That is whom we follow. And that is whom we entrust our very lives, our very circumstances this week, every frustration, Every anger that we feel, that is who we cast our anxieties upon. Very light of true light. True God of true God. Begotten, not made. Of the same essence as the Father. Or as John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your plan in sending the Son down to earth, to take on frail humanity, to go to the cross, to pay the penalty for our rebellion against you, to defeat sin and death by being raised from the dead and promising forgiveness and restoration and deliverance for all who put their faith in him. God, thank you 
for Jesus. Who because he is very God of very God, we can cast every fear and anxiety upon him. We can commit our lives to following him, knowing that he is trustworthy and true. So Father, help us to do that. Help us to rightly embrace the biblical Jesus. Help us to entrust our very lives and eternity to him, who is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, who is the creator of all things and the sustainer of all things, who is our Redeemer. God, help us to trust in King Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.